it was a, a bit of a risk because who is this professor guy in Yunnan in China who says he's going to look after you when you arrive? But uh, sort of what the hell? So I jumped in a plane. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to Detouring, a podcast about people who've changed their careers. My name is Thiago, and I'm your host. Today, I'm here with Steve Axford, and he's a photographer and he used to be a software engineer. Uh, do you want to say hi? Hello. Let's start with the, with the usual question. Do you want to introduce a little bit about yourself and what do you do now? Well, I'm a fungi photographer, which is a very niche profession. I take photographs of wild fungi and still photographs and time-lapse. So the time-lapse of the mushrooms growing. Hmm. And my partner's cinematographer and together we make up a pair called Planet Fungi. Before you got to where you were, I usually start with what did you want to be when you were a kid? <laughs> well, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. All my family was very science-oriented. I had an elder brother who was a physicist and my sister was a physiologist and my other brother was a chemical engineer. Most of my extended family were into science in some way, so... I naturally thought I'd go into science or engineering. So I left school and I did my last years of studying in England. I left school and I went to Imperial College and studied mineral technology, which in some ways was quite exciting. In some ways, I thought, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> but I ended up in the... I, I didn't get a degree and then I ended up in the mining industry as a miner. So I worked in the mining industry various roles for a while, worked in explosives research for a year and a half. Mm. But in all of those sessions, you had to be, you had to have a degree to move up the ladder. You couldn't just go in there and become a mining engineer or a, a chemist working in explosives. So eventually I, I got a job in the computer industry, which was really quite young at that stage. And no one had even heard of computer science as a degree. They needed lots of people and um, no one had degrees at that stage. So I got a job in the computer industry. Found I was very good at it. Hmm. In fact, at one stage I was managing 14 people, all of them that had degrees, at least undergraduate, you know, Bachelor of Science or something, some with PhDs. So I was lucky I got into an industry where you didn't have to have a degree because there were no degrees in computer science then, or very few. Mm. And, and I'm finding now, you know, even more, even now that's a more established area and more and more we're, we're finding that degrees in computer science don't, don't really help people are as much as capable when they are self-taught, maybe even more capable when they're self-taught. Yeah, like I listened to the vice president in charge of employment in Google. Mm. So a fairly large corporation. And he said that they try to hire half of their people from people who haven't got degrees because in the research that they've seen that half the really bright people in, around uh, have degrees, but half of them don't. Mm -hmm. And most companies don't hire them unless they've got degrees. So Google runs out there and hires a whole lot of people who are really talented who for some reason or another didn't get a degree. Sometimes it's just bad luck. But uh, in my case, I don't think I was studying the right thing. <laughs> Before we get into what you're currently doing, you, you mentioned the mining industry. What was that like? Well, it was 
You know, I worked in various roles, basically just labouring roles in most cases, but worked in a, a nickel smelter in Ontario and Canada. Mm-hmm. I worked as a student in a gold mine in South Africa. That was on occasions very frightening <laughs> because the the ground was very unstable. So you'd go underground into tight spaces with the rock visibly cracking. You could shine your light up cracks in the rock and wow. they had these square set timbers supposedly holding the roof up but no bit of wood holds up 4,000 feet of rock and it was very hot and that was something that I wouldn't want to do again <laughs> but then I I worked in Tasmania in a mine there worked as a miner and I really quite enjoyed that once you got the hang of it it was a very um it's a very intense sort of job. You look at the old Welsh coal miners, very dangerous job, but it's almost almost addictive in its own right because it is so intense. Wow. No, it's a young man's job because you reach your peak earning potential maybe towards 40 and then afterwards injuries and things like that. You can't keep going. So a lot of miners end up with back injuries and this sort of thing. You saw the writing on the wall about the injuries and all of that. Is that when you kind of went towards the explosives research? Yeah, then I, I gave up that. I worked in explosives research for a while, but there I had to have a degree to move up the ladder. Mm. So then I searched around and found a job, a very basic job with computers. It was actually working for an East German company. Well, it was derived in East Germany. They didn't own it anymore. East Germany is not the place that you think of as a computer mecca. It's not quite like Silicon Valley. But they they made these accounting machines that had programs which were just soldered together diodes and relays. So I did that for a little while and found I was very good at it, very good at soldering things together and uh, they paid you piece rates, so they'd work out how, how long it should take you to do a program, and I'd do it in about half the time, so I'd get paid twice as much. <laughs> and then they made me a programmer, and then I worked, moved to IBM Computers and worked as a programmer there for a while, assembler programmer, and then got a job as a systems programmer and worked my way up from there. You mentioned before that you... So this was like around the 70s and 80s, right? How was like the computer science field back then? Well, it was fairly well developed, but there weren't a mass of students coming through doing computer science degrees. Computer science was very definitely science. So people who were into the science of making computers and that sort of thing, I think, did computer science degrees. It wasn't, they didn't teach you programming. Well, they taught you some programming, I'm sure, but... uh, we, we didn't really see very many people coming out with those degrees. Yeah, you mentioned that you were, you were programming in assembly, and I remember doing some assembly and how very unlike current programming that is. And I, I remember doing it, I'm like, oh, people back then, they must all be geniuses. <laughs> well, we didn't do anything very complicated. There wasn't, wasn't any visual basic. Assembler code was very basic i remember programming when i first got into programming on the accounting machines we had a 4k rom to fit our program on so the whole program had to be programmed in 4k mm-hmm. so it was an art of fiddling things around so you could fit things in 
now you never never worry about how much space the program takes. Yeah, that's right. Right now it's more of a challenge. So I, I mentioned just before that we started the interview that I'm doing this game jam and it's called JS13K. And the, the goal is to make a game in JavaScript, but the game can only take up 13 kilobytes. Even even that is more than what you had available. <laughs> yeah, but same sort of thing. You got to fit code in, you have subroutines and you execute the subroutines, call them from many different places. Whereas when I left the computer industry, it was more inline code, just write it all mm. out, copy it in with something or other, but it didn't matter what, you wouldn't have this massive subroutines that you call them in obscure places and trying to trace through someone else's program was almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, code was written for for the computers, not for people. Yeah. So eventually you got tired of computer science and decided to become a photographer. So what was that decision like? Well, it was probably prompted my wife at the time uh, died of breast cancer and immediately after she died, then I was diagnosed with a at the point I was diagnosed an incurable disease, which then relatively quickly afterwards, they came up with a treatment that was six months of chemotherapy. And the whole episode was very um, disturbing to my sense of what I was. And when I came out of it uh, after she died and after had recovered from the disease, I started to travel a lot more and I got into things like climbing volcanoes. So uh, I spent a few years climbing volcanoes, even to the extent where I started leading tours because I got involved with a, a group that was well, a volcanologist who was leading groups, tourists up volcanoes because it was hard for volcanologists to get jobs. So he did a career change and be became a, a volcano tourist guy. <laughs> so I joined him for a while and led some groups but decided didn't really like that because I didn't, you know, leading groups around all the time is not what I wanted to do. And then I discovered mushrooms. And this was while I'm, I'm still working with computers and I found this bright purple mushroom. And I couldn't believe that anything so striking and so beautiful could have escaped human attention. I photographed that and gradually I photographed more and more fungi. And then when I came to leave the computer industry, because it, it really wasn't satisfying me anymore after seeing a few volcanoes, I should tell you a, a story about how I got involved with the volcanoes. Was um, I was flying in Indonesia on a, a tour out to the eastern islands of Indonesia, and I had to fly from Jakarta to Maumere in Flores. Mm -hmm. When I got there, I, I decided that I needed um, malaria prophylaxis because there's a lot of malaria in that area, that part of Indonesia. And this was a time when they were prescribing larium. Larium is an anti-malarial drug which quite commonly causes psychosis. Okay. You only take it once a week, so I'd taken it a week before I was going to travel. And I had a few strange effects the next day afterwards, but I, I thought oh, I'm going a bit crazy or something, but it went away. Then I took one the day before I left to travel, and I was really strange. I, I arrived in Jakarta in the middle of uh, the monetary crisis, would have been 1998, I think. Mm -hmm. And there was like 40% unemployment in Jakarta. So I didn't go into the city. I stayed at the Marriott Hotel and 
I got into the room and the whole room's closing in on me and I, I knew I had to get out. <laughs> so I got out and I walked down to reception thinking that people have got to see that I'm not right. I got to reception and asked where the bar was and found my way to the bar, which is this beautiful bar overlooking the swimming pool. No one in it, no one there at all because no one was going to Jakarta at the time. And I talked to the, the barman for about five hours and managed to settle down. Got out, left to go to Maumere and got on the plane, got to Bali and the plane was there and my party aeroplane had, all the paint was worn off it because it was such an old plane. The windows, the double windows, they've got two layers of glass or plastic, I don't know which, but there were holes right through them. So they couldn't pressurise the plane, which meant they couldn't fly above 10,000 feet. So they flew at 10,000 feet over a volcano by the name of Tambora. And Tambora is 9,000 feet high, and it has this enormous crater at the top. So there's a crater that's 13 kilometres in length, and I think about six or eight kilometres wide, and 1,000 metres deep. And it erupted about early 1800s. It was about 10 times the size of Krakatoa. So this vast explosion. And after seeing that, I I just became a bit infatuated with volcanoes. I had to see them up close then. So that's when I started climbing the volcanoes. Yeah, but then you realised that wasn't really for you because you found that purple mushroom then. Yeah, I, I still continue with the volcanoes for quite a while because the mushroom thing, it gradually grew. Like I'd see a mushroom. I started going out into the forest to find more, but I continued climbing volcanoes quite a while. But it it wasn't a career, and eventually I stopped as I got older because it's not so much climbing up the volcanoes, it's coming down them because they tend to be, you you slip all the time, so it's incredible strain on your knees. Mm. Climbing up, you know, it's two step forwards, one step back, but going down, it's always you know you're jarring your knees all the time so my knees eventually gave up with climbing volcanoes (laughs) but the mushrooms i could do i just had to go out in a rainforest i think in britain you more go out in meadows or things like that i I had had a bit of a look like yesterday if we've got like any like ancient woodlands Mm. and i think there's like maybe only two percent of the green area in the uk is is ancient woodlands Uh, so it's not very not very promising, but I, I, I had a look and around the North North Yorkshire area where I live, there's like two of them. Yeah. Well, check out on the internet with um, mushroom groups on Facebook or something like that. And mm. There's a, often local groups around where you are. Mm-hmm. They may be able to provide information. Well, I'm sure they could provide some information. Yeah. So what does a mushroom photographer or a fungi photographer do? (laughs) Apart from photographing mushrooms or fungi. (laughs) Yes. Well, if I describe what what happened, how I got into actually selling mushroom photographs, Mm -hmm. it was about, I don't know, 2013, something like that, maybe 2014, I got an email from a American blog called This Is Colossal. Now, I, I didn't really think anything of it. And I, they said, can we use your photographs in a blog? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? And forgot about it. Anyway, a week or two later when they published their blog, I suddenly got all of these emails from, mainly from Europe, but um, 
all over the world with people wanting to publish an article on my mushrooms. And, you know, some of the best nature magazines in the world were you know, requesting these photographs and paying quite good money for them as well. So all of a sudden I had a bit of an income from selling mushrooms, which I, I thought, well, I'll be flavour of the month for a while and then people will get bored with it and move on. And then within the next year, I got an email from the BBC asking if I had any information on luminous fungi. We happen to have a lot of luminous fungi around where I live. I, literally in the backyard, we'll find luminous fungi. Hmm. So I'd published photographs on them and I didn't respond to the BBC to start with because I'd been talking to my partner, Catherine, about maybe making a film on the fungi time-lapse that I was just starting to do. But then we found it was very difficult to get a film going. So I replied to the BBC and sent them um, some of my first little time-lapses of luminous fungi. They sent out a producer and she came around with us for a while and then they provided some equipment, bought some time-lapse, a minute and a quarter of time-lapse, which doesn't sound very much, but when it ends up on Planet Earth 2 with uh, David Attenborough doing the voiceover, <laughs> it's something a bit special. <laughs> and since then, then a, another thing happened within a year or so of that. I got an email from uh, Professor Peter Mortimer in from the Kunming Institute of Botany, which is a postgraduate university in Kunming in China and he wanted to know if I could go with them and to help them document the fungi because they document the fungi from a scientific point of view but photographs they figured would be invaluable in producing a field guide in one of the areas they were looking at. It was a, a bit of a risk because who is this professor guy in Yunnan in China who says he's going to look after you when you arrive, but uh, thought, what the hell? So we jumped in a plane. <laughs> so that was a, a month trip to some rainforests in Yunnan. Have you been to China before, before this trip? I had been to China once before, yes, but it's different when you go as a tourist than when you go when you're, you're working at something and you, you're going to non-tourist areas. We were going to areas that, I won't say tourists weren't allowed, but they certainly weren't encouraged. Mm. You know, generally there was no tourists there because there was no accommodation. Mm -hmm. Where one other place we went to, the professor's wife didn't even get permission to go. So they're more or less restricted areas. This one was close to the Vietnam border mm -hmm. in the Red River region. And cloud forests there, so we travelled to cloud forests and high alpine forests, all sorts of forests. A beautiful place. One of the most spectacular places I've ever been to. Yeah, maybe because tourists aren't allowed, it keeps the, the natural beauty, maybe. Yeah, it's a very mountainous region of the world and the, the mountains tend to stop the expansion of people. There's a lot of people there, but it was... Like we went to one place where there was an old palace. People tell, told us oh, it was a very old palace here. And then we read on the sign that it was built in the 1950s and it didn't come under the central Chinese government until well into the 60s. Mm. The Chinese government people just hadn't been there. It was a separate state within China. It wasn't recorded by anyone. Wow. 
so I found your interesting mushrooms. You got featured on Planet Earth 2. And that's, that's how I originally found, found out about you because I saw Planet Earth 2. And I remember looking at those time lapses and I'm like, oh my God, this looks amazing. And I need to find out who did this. And then I came across your name. When I started uh, making this, this podcast, I thought I need to have Steve Axford on my podcast at some point uh, because I knew you had been a software engineer before. And, you know, I just became fascinated by the, the work that you did. And all of this work then got you to travel around the world and look at different mushrooms in different places and different fungi in different places. What's like the strangest or most interesting one that you found? There's a, an incredible number of them that are really interesting. The, probably my favourites are the insect-eating fungi, insect and spider. Hmm. Arthropods generally, they eat all, all sorts of little critters. But we call them the zombie ant fungi because they, when they infect ants, they take over the nervous system of the ant and cause the ant to climb up high in branches, which ants don't normally do. A ground ant will stay on the ground, but the fungus causes them to climb up and then to fix its mandibles onto a leaf or a stem, and there it dies. The fungi consumes it. The fruiting bodies come out, out of the back or the back of the head. Very science fiction, very gruesome sort of stuff if you think about it. <laughs> but um, the spores are spread all over near the ants, if the ant find another ant that's infected, they'll take that ant's body away to an ant graveyard. So they'll try and keep the rest of the, the ant separated from the fungus mm -hmm. because, of course, a, a nest of ants is highly susceptible to something like disease, you know, like people in a city with COVID. The ants in a nest are even tighter, but most ants' nests seem to survive the fungus. Just the occasional one gets overwhelmed. There's, a, there's another one that's uh, a cicada, which gets consumed by the fungus as well. The fungus only, only consumes the abdomen, so the musculature is left. The fungus produces two chemicals, which they've identified so far, which it introduces into the nervous system to cause the cicada to fly. The fruiting body is sticking out the back of the head and spreading spores everywhere where the cicada flies wow now the two chemicals that the fungus uses are amphetamine and psilocybin so that, that's the reason that fungi have things like psilocybin it's for it's for insects it tends to send insects very batty huh. that's interesting uh, humans we consume them for all the other effects you know recreationally or sometimes medicinally 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 but it's interesting, you know, why they've evolved this sort of chemicals. And it's so strange that a, a fungi that you normally think of, something that, you know, appears on your rotten food, right, is capable of dominating almost like the mind of a creature and force it to do things. It's, it's like very... Yeah, horror movie sort of stuff. Yeah, I don't know if that's where the, the whole zombie thing came out of or whatever. Maybe they've seen this happen with insects and thought, hmm, what if this happened to humans? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I saw, what was it? I think it was in the in the movie that you made when you went to, I think, India? Yeah. There's a scene where you find like a an insect on like a rock wall or whatever, and it's got like two things coming out of it, out of this dead insect. 
Yeah, that was great. You know, India was, we went to an area of India that's very seldom visited by tourists, which is far eastern India. So there's Assam and Meghalaya and Arunachal Pradesh. They're places that people don't visit normally. Mm-hmm. And Meghalaya was where we did a lot of mushroom hunting, and that's just to the north of Bangladesh. So all the monsoon winds come in across Bangladesh, drop heaps of rain, and then hit Meghalaya. Meghalaya just rises to about two, two and a half thousand metres out of the plains. So when the monsoons hit Meghalaya, they just drop all the rain. And one place we were in, they get an average rainfall of around 11 metres each year. Wow. Their, their highest rainfall was three metres in two days. Wow. Or was it two metres in three days? Well, several metres in a couple of days, which is a hell of a lot of rain. And we go there in the wet season, of course, because that's when the mushrooms grow. So it rained a lot. But you get used to it. And you, yeah. And it doesn't rain all the time. It just rains very heavily for short periods. Occasionally it might rain very heavily for a day or two, but uh, we managed to miss that. But we do, in a month, we've been to India or that area of India a couple of times looking for mushrooms. And I think in the two months we've been there, apart from in Calcutta, we didn't see any western tourists at all none Mm. it was like covid had hit or something like that but this was before covid and so you've you've had this this whole journey you know from from uh (laughs) even mining to to being a photographer of fungi and throughout all these changes that you've made how did people around you react to you deciding i'm not going to do this anymore i'm going to do this other thing well very well in i can't think of anyone who objected to it I mean, even to the point that my son, I think now, is is quite pleased to have a a dad who does something interesting like photographing fungi and continues to do it into his 70s. <laughs> so, no, no, no one objected at all. Everyone was very supportive and interested, basically. I, I've got Parkinson's disease now. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that always retains my interest and motivation is going out into the forest looking for mushrooms and photographing mushrooms. It's just like I haven't got anything wrong with me when I do that. Whereas other times, you know, if, if I'm asked to do something that I really don't want to do, it's incredibly difficult to do it because motivation is something that disappears with Parkinson's. You haven't got the energy to do things. But I, I still manage to retain the energy to take photographs of fungi, to make films of fungi, to talk about fungi, to do podcasts on fungi. It's interesting you mentioned that you got diagnosed with Parkinson's, which is a terrible disease. And in in some of the documentaries I've seen about fungi, there's like some research about some properties and how they can help with any neurological problems. Is this something that you, because you're quite interested in fungi, is this something that you research on your own as well? Not really. Most of our focus on fungi is really just pure science in what's out there, how it fits together, how the fungi lives, not not so much what we can get from the fungi, which can be quite considerable when it comes to chemicals because fungi are the ultimate producers of chemicals. You know, we take food and put it in our mouths and consume the food. Fungi 
puts itself in the food, releases chemicals to metabolize the food or to change the food into something they can eat, and then they absorb that from the the surroundings. Mm. So for producing chemicals, they really are pretty fantastic. Like I mentioned, psilocybin, they use psilocybin a lot for protection against insects or control of insects. It's mainly directed towards insects. Since all life arose from the same things and we tend to reuse things, there are things used in our nervous system that are used in um, insects' nervous systems in maybe a slightly different way, but the chemicals are derived in the same way. So, you know, lots of our spices and things are actually related to neurotransmitters. So it's not the fungi is directing something at us, it's just it's incidental, but they're very complex molecules and they, there are billions of them, I, I think, through the world. So there's a huge opportunity to discover them. Mm. And it goes to think about all the things that we haven't found out yet that could be destroyed by what, what we are doing to the planet. It's sad to hear all the opportunities that we might be losing, I think. Yeah, it's very sad to... Because we will lose them. I mean, there's no question that we are going to wipe out 90%, maybe more of the species on this planet. I think we've gone past the tipping point of where this will happen, whether we like it or not now. And it's sad to see all of these species gone. But, mm. you know, and I, I think David Attenborough probably summed it up. He's trying to document what we've got so that future generations can see it anyway. And I, I think that's what a lot of people are trying to do now, trying trying to catalogue what we've got. So we've got a chance of finding out how everything fits together, where we fit in. Mm-hmm. Too many people think we're just, we're isolated and we can live by ourselves. But you just look at our body and it contains more more cells of other things than it does human cells, that our gut is all bacteria and fungi and all sorts of things down there. We don't really have much of an understanding on how it works. But if we haven't got it, we don't live. Yeah. Like sometimes we don't even understand the systems that we create and how they interact with each other. Uh, (laughs) Talk about a very big and complex system that is the whole of the planet and how everything interacts together and even things we don't even know about so uh, i think we, we're a bit we're an arrogant species <laughs> i think uh, yeah arrogant and stupid <laughs> but we we've come this far uh, i guess it's just evolution we've evolved to be able to cope with one environment and where we've created a new environment which we weren't evolved to handle at all so we're doing our best to cope with it Mm. And we get the occasional idiot on the road, on the road who tries to make life more difficult for us. People without vision, I would say. Yeah, or vision in the wrong direction. So, have you got advice for people to get? I won't say the computer industry because I've I've talked to many people about the computer industry, and they've all got different like all their advice. Unless you've got something special that you want to say, but more specifically. Uh, to help people get into photography or get into like the fungi community? Well, photography is relatively easy to get into. Get yourself a camera, 
preferably your mobile phones a good way to start you can take pictures and you know everyone uses mobile phones now so pretty well everyone has a camera mm. if you want to get into photography then perhaps get a slightly better camera work your way up i remember when i first started i had a tiny little camera and i got a bigger camera and a bigger camera and moved into the more professional type of cameras but that's you know get into it if you enjoy it and if you think you're taking good photographs then the other side of photography is what are you going to photograph mm. some people take portraits and some people take architecture i take fungi you know that that's macro photography and which is particularly demanding i guess because taking small objects you can't just point your mobile phone at it like a, the tiniest of shakes will blur the image so you need to be fairly meticulous like having a science background is quite useful mm-hmm. it's not necessary because there's lots of great photographers who have not a scientific bone in their body i'm sure <laughs> I mean, it's really do what you enjoy because getting into photography is you know if you wanted to get into it when you're 30 and make lots of money out of it and things like this you you've got to be interested in something that people will pay for very quickly mushrooms were never something like that but if i was young i'd probably be a bit stretched for cash <laughs> get to do lots of interesting things but it wouldn't be a really high paid profession i don't think but then I, I do know other people in the industry who have done fairly well. But it, it's all because they've had a passion for something and they've followed, followed their heart and they happen to get lucky, I guess. Because if I'd got into photographing fungi, uh, you know, 10 years earlier or 10 years later, it probably wouldn't have happened. 10 years later, someone else would have already done it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. 10 years earlier, the equipment didn't allow for it. Yeah. Really, you know, time lapse in the days of um, film cameras was very, very difficult. Yeah, well, it will, and you to make moving pictures, you need 25 frames per second, or thereabouts, anyway. So, if you're talking about 10 seconds, that's 250 frames. So, with a film camera, you You've got to have 250, you've got to splice them together, you've got to play them as a movie, cut it down maybe, you know, do your do all your work on it. It's a, a lot of work. I, I have no idea what the amount of work is because I've never really worked with film. I've only worked with digital. Mm. And with, with digital, you have the other side of the coin. You probably need like really large hard drives to store all your work in backing up stuff so that you don't lose it because hard drives aren't, you can't trust them. It gets like a different set of problems, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's technical problems, but at least the individual can do it now. Hmm. You can buy the equipment instead of, you know, in the past it might have been buying $50,000 or $100,000 when $50,000 or $100,000 was really worth something. (laughs) To spend that sort of money back in the 1980s or 70s even, you know, there weren't many people who could do it. You had to start off rich or be working for someone who had a lot of money. Yeah. The, my final bit on the on this advice. If you want to get closer with the fungi, 
community. You mentioned before there's probably like some meetups or whatever or reach out to local experts. But how, how do you go about, you know, finding those things or understanding more about about the subject and get involved into the community? Well, there's, there's quite a few books on fungi now. It's become much better known than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. But if you, you want to get in touch with fungi groups, just search on the internet for fungi, mushroom, and there, there'll be a lot of groups and there's probably some local group around near you where people go out looking for mushrooms, some of them looking for edible mushrooms, some of them just looking for mushrooms and just identifying things. So that's the best way. You join one of these groups and you ask a few questions and they're pretty easy to get on with. Most of the fungi groups, there's not a lot of spam. There's, they don't need to be controlled because people who are talking about fungi usually don't bring politics and things into it. <laughs> There isn't a lot of silliness in fungi groups, not from my experience anyway. But uh, you know, we, we've got friends in you know, everywhere from Kazakhstan to Tierra del Fuego, really. They just spread all across the world. Several friends in Siberia, not that I've communicated with them recently, but I've got friends in Moscow, most of the Arab countries, all through Eastern Europe, South America. I was quite popular in South America for a while. I think I probably still am, but India. So the, the world really opens up. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, especially on, on in places where there's a lot of vegetation and old vegetation, you'd probably be more lucky to find, well, find, find the fungi themselves, but also find these groups. But it seems like there's at least one in every little corner of the world, just like fungi themselves, right? Yeah. When I came up to live where I'm living at the moment, which is northern New South Wales, not far from the coast where it's subtropical rainforest, it's a natural vegetation, I came up here and I thought, there's probably not going to be a lot of fungi up here. I was coming up here anyway, so I thought there's no, not going to be much fungi up here because I haven't read anything about the fungi that's up here. No one seems to be looking at it, so if you assume no one's looking at it, you assume there isn't any. Mm. I got up here and there was probably more fungi than I'd seen. Well, more fungi through an extended period of time than I'd seen anywhere else because mm -hmm. uh, I know places where you get more intense fungus in autumn, but here the fungi would start coming up towards the end of spring and continue towards the end of winter. Some years you'd only miss out a month or two without much fungi and the rest of the time there'd be all different species coming up depending on the time of the year so it was a, a never-ending smorgasbord of things to photograph just because nobody talks about it it doesn't mean it's not there you probably just have to go out and and find them yeah is there is there anything that you'd like to add at all well i should mention my partner because uh, i think that i got involved in Fungi before I met Catherine, but she's a cinematographer, documentary cinematographer. Mm -hmm. We go to make up Planet Fungi now, and she does all the work with making the film, and I do the work with the still photographs and the time lapse and standing in front of the camera. <laughs> so between the two of us, we do a pretty good job. It's always useful to team up with someone else. 
If you've got a hobby, uh, I watched a film a while ago on uh, Industrial Light and Magic. So on the George Lucas, yeah, you know how they made Star Wars and how they got that group of people together, and all of the people were doing this because they loved doing it. No, they no one was willing to pay them at the time, so they just did it anyway. Which is sort of what I've done. I just did it anyway, and. You don't know what's going to happen, but you say, this is a really cool thing to do. So you get into doing the really cool things to do. Yeah, and then surrounding yourself with people that also love what they do, and that can add to your activity, just like you you, you found Catherine, and the two of you make, make this two-man band making cinematography on fungi. Yeah. And we learn lots about fungi on the way. We, we come into contact with all sorts of scientists and they tell us about fungi and we learn about the ecology and then that spreads to the ecology of other things. So, you know, I, I learned about, you know, I'd never done biological sciences before, but I've learned most of what I learn now is about biological sciences. Funny how things go around because in, in the beginning uh, you said all your family is pretty scientific And then you kind of went in another direction only to come back into the scientific community anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I came in from a, a slightly different area and uh, I'm more a citizen scientist now, I suppose you'd say. But there seems to be a lot of opportunity for citizen scientists now because the scientists have, there's so much information they've got to handle and they tend to be stuck behind desks. And it's people like myself and other people with an interest in fungi who get out there and get to go into the forests and see the fungus growing. And we can do that a lot more than the scientists can. So if we interface with the scientists, we can provide them with information and they can help us. Mm. Yeah, it's a community effort. Yeah. I think that's a wrap. Thank you very much, Stephen. I really, really enjoyed this chat with you. It was very enlightening and very interesting to know about your your journey until you well where you've gotten so far and to learn a little bit more about fungi as well. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And for everybody else, I'll see you on the next episode. Bye bye. Goodbye.